Hello and welcome, this is GFN News on GFN.tv. I'm your host Joanna Junak. In today's news. The Belgium Superior Health Council now supports vaping as a safer alternative to smoking. In the United States, the FDA seems to have backed away from its decision to take Juul off the market. Consumer advocate John Summers will share his thoughts on vaping in the UK today. And after the news, Brent Stafford of RecWatch interviews Brad Rodu, professor of medicine at the University of Fluvial in Kentucky and the winner of this year's Michael Russell Award. Belgium Superior Health Council has delivered a report which supports vaping as a safer alternative to smoking, or as a quid aid which can lead to a significant reduction in health risks. The report also states that vaping is not risk-free and is therefore not recommended for non-smokers, especially the young, recommending that further long-term safety data are needed. Dr. Colin Mendelssohn, tobacco treatment clinician, funding chairman of the Australia Tobacco Harm Reduction Association, commented on the report on his blog. He shared with us his personal thoughts on why Belgium supports vaping, while in Australia the authorities are against it. Yes, look, what's happened recently is that the Belgian Superior Health Council did a review of all the evidence on vaping. It took about two years, it was a comprehensive review, and they came to a very sensible uh, evidence-based um, and balanced approach to vaping. So they, they concluded quite rightly that vaping is a far safer alternative to smoking, as, as we know it is. They concluded that it's an effective quitting aid, which could especially help a lot of the vulnerable smokers uh, in that disadvantaged group um, and lead to significant reductions in disease and illness um, in, in the country, uh, as, as you would expect. They were very clear it's not for non-smokers, um, especially young people, but they recognised also that very few non-smokers were, were vaping regularly. So that's, that's a really important uh, observation. They did comment that the long-term risks are unknown, which is quite reasonable. Um, so it's best to use vaping in the short term from a health point of view, unless there's a risk of uh, relapsing back to smoking. And they recommended that uh, conventional cigarettes should be more difficult to access than vaping, uh, which is sensible. Um, and they support the availability of vaping as a consumer product for adult smokers. Uh, and they, they wanted to see more education for smokers because there's so much misinformation worldwide about vaping. So that was um, considered a high priority. And they recommended a proportionate approach to regulation. So vaping to be regulated at a different level to that of smoking, which is of course a much higher high risk product and, and low excise to encourage people to, to make that switch. Um, Australian authorities came out recently with a very different analysis of the data. So they looked at the very same evidence and came to a very cautious and restrictive view of vaping. They see vaping as a threat. They see there's something we just aren't ready to accept yet. Um, and their, their assessment, and of that's of the National Health and Medical Research Council, which is our peak health body, was mostly focused on the potential risks of vaping. Uh, the risks were exaggerated. They attributed 
a number of risks to vaping which are not valid. Things like Ivali and seizures, uh, they attributed vaping as a gateway to smoking, which of course we know it isn't. Um, and they failed to acknowledge the benefits of vaping. They're very selective in the data that they, they selected. So really their, their, their assessment is not based on the scientific evidence. It's based more on a traditional ideological approach uh, and moral concerns about, about vaping. Um, and it's based on an abstinence only approach and a zero nicotine tolerance policy. Um, uh, and there, look, there are other issues in the background, things like we have enormous uh, financial benefits from smoking. There are huge uh, tax um, uh, uh, taxes available from, um, from taxing cigarettes, which obviously are a threat to our treasury. There's a huge mistrust of big tobacco and that's being used as an argument against vaping. Of course, it's not relevant, but it's constantly raised. And there's political risk. I mean, there are concerns amongst politicians if they uh, allow vaping, there's more harm to the um, political side of, of, of the issue for them. So basically they've chosen to be overcautious about vaping for all the wrong reasons. And I think it's a very short-sighted misguided approach which will end up costing Australian lives. We will now return to the situation in the United States where the FDA on June 23rd ordered Juul to pull its products from the market. But there have been developments since. What's been happening, Quill? Things moved rapidly, Joanna, after the FDA's June 23rd marketing denial order to Juul caused shock in the THR community. First, Juul immediately sought and obtained a court-ordered emergency administrative stay allowing its products to temporarily remain on sale. This seemed like the first step of a major legal battle. But the bigger news came on July 5th with an announcement from the FDA itself. After, after reviewing Juul's legal filings, the agency said that it, quote, determined that there are scientific issues unique to this application that warrant additional review. And so the FDA is temporarily suspending the marketing denial order while that additional review is carried out. This all feels rather extraordinary, given that the FDA had already taken nearly two years in reviewing Juul's PMTA applications. Just two weeks after ordering Juul off the shelves, the FDA appeared to be backing away from its own decision, at least for now. Where do things go from here? The implications, as so often during this opaque PMTA process, are unclear. Reporting for Filter, Alex Norsha wrote that either the FDA could simply be taking time to bolster its marketing denial order before engaging in a court case, or that it could end up backtracking entirely. We don't know to what extent the FDA and Juul, which I'll mention again has provided grants to Filter, could be communicating behind closed doors. The outcome, as we speak, is very hard to guess. What we do know, as Helen Redmond wrote for Filter this week, is that enormous damage has already been done. Millions of former smokers use Juul and their access is the bottom line. People may object to Juul's early marketing campaigns and the ensuing PR damage, whereas others like Helen feel rather that the company should have pushed back much harder against misinformation and teen epidemic claims instead of, quote, 
pleading for redemption. But as she wrote, how many more smokers would have made the switch if the war to destroy Jewel hadn't been waged? That is the real tragedy. According to Public Health England, recently renamed the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, vapes are at least 95% safer than smoking, and in the UK, vaping products are recommended by the National Health Service as an effective way to help people give up smoking. We decided it was time to revisit the situation in the UK, and so we asked John Summers, a UK consumer advocate, a few questions. Thank you, John, for joining us. Can you tell us what do you do and what is your area of interest? Sure. Sure. Um, so my name is John Summers. Um, I'm a consumer advocate from the UK. Uh, I work in IT um, for a wealth management company. Um, and I've worked in, worked in IT for nearly 30 years. But previous to that, my, my area of study was chemistry. So I have a bit of a scientific geeky background. Um, I'm a dad um, and a husband, and um, I do a lot of volunteer work with health, other health organisations. Um, and I've done work with um, Public Health England, the National Centre for Smoke Cessation Training, and um, Stop Smoking Bristol Health not so much from a, a from a stop smoking perspective but from the perspective of helping people get the right information about vaping electronic cigarettes and, and other safer nicotine products as well um in some cases working with some really quite heavily entrenched smokers people that are struggling to quit um or switch or you know whatever they choose to do um uh, um, my approach is um, was met with some uh, interest by uh, some of the, the the old guard smoke and uh, smoking cessation people. Um, but there you go. Um, but I've never worked in the vape industry. Never worked for a tobacco company, etc., etc. I'm just I'm just a, an I'm an interested party. I go, you know, I, I switched accidentally if you like to vaping I, I dual used for a couple of years very early on with the really rubbish products <laughs> the, the really early um, electronic cigarettes and then after two years I just happened to find a better tank the right flavoring liquid and without really realizing it that day stopped smoking and that's oh god blimey um 13 odd years ago um so haven't looked back uh haven't smoked since which has had a massive impact on me and my family uh in the year before i switched i had chest infections and bronchitis about five times in a one in a 12 month period um since then i think i've had a chest infection apart from covid once um which okay is it to a lot of people is an anecdote but to me personally and to my family that's one heck of a difference. So can you tell us what the situation is with vaping in England at the moment? Are there any rules about where or when you can vape, for example? Legally, it's allowed everywhere. Um, because it, the vaping is not smoking. Um, however, um, it's things are interpreted 
rather oddly. If you if you are in a workplace, for instance, you, nine times out of ten, if you are wanting to use an electronic cigarette, you will be put in the same place as a smoker. Now, that is actually against the guidance of the UK Health and Safety Executive, who caution employers that doing so may actually put them at risk of being sued because by putting the vapors you know by order in the same place as a smoker you're intentionally exposing that person to cigarette smoke which the stop smoking community claim secondhand smoke of course is just as dangerous as smoking so if that's true you can't be pushing all of those people into the same place and it's kind of the same in a lot of venues in the UK so pretty much most pubs shops clubs restaurants will treat electronic cigarette use in exactly the same way as smoking so the common thing you will see is a stop smoking sign that says also says no electronic cigarettes um, to the point that at one, at one rugby stadium, uh, I was stood a good 20 metres away from the nearest person in a completely open area venue with no signage that actually said you weren't allowed to use an electronic cigarette. Um, it, you know, the wind was howling past me. There was, you know, not, 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 um, not, not harming anyone. And suddenly I heard a shout. You can't do that here. Pardon? I can't do what? That. What do you mean vaping? Yeah, it's not allowed. These signs don't say so. The next thing I know, I was being frog marched out of the venue. I was banned. I was thrown out. Because they insisted that if I wanted to do that, I had to go and stand amongst all the smokers. Now, if I'd chosen to do that, that's fine. But was I going to be told that I had to go and do that. No. And because I said, no, I'm not, not happy to do that, I was thrown out. Now that is against the health and safety executive guidance. But it's, it seems to be the common you know, take. And it's because we, we have, there are organisations like Healthy Stadia, like fresh etc in the uk who despite the guidance from public health england um, as was um, and the national center for smoking cessation training and cancer research and, and what have you their agenda is different because theirs is about quitting nicotine about not using anything um, which, you know, moralistically, maybe, you know, a great thing, but that's not, it's not scientific. It's based around, well, we don't like it. We don't want people doing that. We don't, we don't agree with it. There are lots of things that people don't agree with. There are lots of things that people don't like. I don't like people shouting at me, for instance, across a, um, uh, across a stadium. I have PTSD. So somebody doing that to me is actually, and throwing me out of a rugby stadium is incredibly damaging to me. Um, and the attitude, you know, people's attitudes to that is, oh, well, you're just gonna have to get on with it. That, well, that's the same if I make a choice to do something that's not 
hurting someone in a public place. You know, if I'd been stood inside a room, okay, maybe, you know, what other people think may come into consideration. Um, and certainly indoors, you know, in a bar or a restaurant, what have you, yes, the, ven the operator of the venue has the final decision. It's their, their space. Outdoors, no. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I have no more control over whether or not somebody vapes next to me or smokes next to me or swears next to me or smells next to me. If UK Research says that vaping is a safer alternative for smoking who want to quit smoking than other replacement therapies, why do many people still smoke? And why do many of them believe that e-cigarettes are dangerous? People will people will always do what they want to do. Um, I mean, I know, you know, me initially, I was quite a you know geeky scientific type person. So when I saw you know all this stuff about electronic cigarettes, I went away and I did reading and and you know looked into whether or not this would work. But again, we've got this this persistent media communication um, we've that that of of over egging and, and, and over exaggerating and misinterpreting the, the you know what are quite often not scientific studies they are press releases about some a study that somebody would like to do trying to attract you know tr attract funding and actually they they then you know it, what's being said when you read into the in, into what's behind it is is nonsense and so that that sort of stuff puts people off um attitudes of organizations like healthy stadia etc but if you if you say to someone right you're not allowed to smoke here but you are allowed to do that straight away you send some really really strong messages to that person positive messages it's worth switching why well because i can do that thing without having to go outside or leave the venue or whatever okay i can do that thing and still enjoy what it is that i'm wanting to do i can still be socially involved with my mates with what's going on that must mean that it's okay to do this. So quite quickly, just a small change, you know, you have an area in a pub where you're allowed to vape. It's not hard. All you've got to have is an extractor ban or something like that. Um, we used to do it. Um, and some in some pubs, you probably wish that they still did. Um, yeah, they, they sometimes smell of it, right? Um, straight away you change that message um i and i've seen this negative messaging have some really strong impact i mean a few years ago i was outside a hospital um and it in gloucester where i live and gloucestershire nhs trust policy is that vaping on the grounds is allowed it, you're allowed to vape in the hospital grounds not in the hospital itself for fairly obvious reasons, because on most of the wards there's oxygen in use and any sort of heating apparatus and oxygen is not a great combination. Um, so yeah, I'll, we'll give them a pass on that one. Um, but there are, the patients are allowed to use vapes within 
areas within the hospital and what have you. Anyway, I was outside this hospital using my electronic cigarette and a lady came out and she was, you could see, she was incredibly ill. She was very pale. She had one of the stands with her with IV drips. She had about three IVs on there and she wheeled herself just outside the doorway and started to smoke. And I kind of looked and thought, oof, you know, I'll leave that. And, you know, she's coughing and spluttering and, you know, then she's having another cigarette and, you know, just got chatting. Um, I said, oh, but you're, but you know, you're popular with them. Oh, yeah, 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 they don't like me doing it. Well, have you thought about, you know, switching to something else? And just, you know, got into a conversation with her about it. Had just got to the point where I had a couple of spare, you know, disposable type electronic cigarettes on me. Was just at the point of, yeah, okay, she's going to take, you know, she'll take one. And suddenly a voice from the side screams, you can't do that here. It looks like smoking. So what? So what if it looks like smoking? It's not smoking. And this person's an incredibly heavy smoker who's already, already incredibly ill. And you've now destroyed that, uh, that opportunity for that person to switch. That may result in that person's death. Who knows? Um, and it was com completely counter to the tr NHS Trust's policy. Um, it was completely counter to the signage that was around, but it was their opinion. And their opinion was being fed by media, by and by organisations like the, BMJ, the, the BMA who still have this we don't really want to recommend it we're going to allow our members to the bma is a union it's not a medical authority it's a union the same with same as the you know the the, the royal college of nurses you know it's it, it's not a regulatory body it's not got responsibility for those things but they're still doing this push um, for whatever reason, we can we can theorise as to what they may be, <coughs> um, <laughs> or, or or just flat out you know ignorance and and puritanism, but the, that that attitude really diverts people away from potentially switching to whatever safer product that is. Um, you know, people people do the same thing with snooze. Oh, well, it's like it's like chewing tobacco used to be. Well, actually, no, it's not. Nicotine pouches. Well, yeah, it's just another way to get kids hooked. No, it's not. They don't like them. Um, oh, vaping. Well, if people have disposable vapes and they chuck them down on the ground instead of putting disposing of them, you know, safe properly, yeah, kids probably are going to get hold of them. They shouldn't. But hey, what's the alternative? They smoke. I'll go with that one rather than the smoking. It might not be politically correct, but from a health perspective, they're going to have a much better outcome. Thank you, Don, for sharing your insights. We'll come back to you again in future episodes with some more questions. And now we go over to Brent Stafford and his guest, Brad Rodu. Brad is a professor of medicine and holds an endowed chair in tobacco harm reduction research at the University of Louisville. 
At the Global Forum on Nicotine in Warsaw last month, Brad was the recipient of the 2022 Michael Russell Award. The award is given to individuals who have made substantial and innovative contributions to the science and understanding of safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction. Thanks to his personal and professional dedication to the field over many decades and despite many challenges, Brad is a very worthy recipient. In today's interview, Brad shares his views about people's attitude to smoking, vaping and nicotine. Over to you, Brent. Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. We're here in Warsaw, Poland for the Global Forum on Nicotine, GFN 22, and joining us in person is Dr. Brad Rodu. Brad, thanks for coming back on the show. It's great to be back with you. So tell us, you know, for viewers who don't know where you're from and what you do, fill us in. Well, I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. I also hold an endowed chair in tobacco harm reduction research at the cancer center there. I've been conducting tobacco research and advocating for safer cigarette substitutes since 1994. That's 28 years. How much of that time have you been on the outside? Oh, for quite a bit of it. Uh, it's, it's been a struggle to get this information across to smokers so that they can make choices that will impact their lives and their health. So what was it then, I guess, was it from your medical experience that you witnessed some of the, you know, ravaging that smoking does on the body? That's right. I'm an oral pathologist and I worked in a cancer center treating and making diagnoses under the microscope and clinically of many, many kinds of cancers and uh, immunosuppressed cancer patients undergoing therapy. I saw lots of cancers at that, and many of them in smokers. And at that point, the two minute warning is over and folks are looking at death. And so that's what drove me to find a way to help smokers quit that didn't involve completely abstaining from all nicotine and tobacco products. Now, uh, does quitting smoking actually, you know, prevent the cancer or is it too late at some point? Well, obviously, the, the more you smoke, the, the higher the risk and the more chance that you're going to have a deadly disease. But to be honest with you, you can quit almost any time before you're 40 years of age and avoid almost all of the risks. That's not widely known, but that's what the data, that's what the statistics say. And so the sooner you quit, the better, but quitting at any, almost any age, and we've demonstrated this in research reports, quitting at almost any age does improve your chances as opposed to continuing to smoke at that age. So say you're a 30, 35 year old male, you've been smoking for 15, 20 years, you quit through uh, nicotine vaping. Mm -hmm. Would you enjoy the same benefits as if you would just uh, quit smoking altogether? Well, of course we don't have long-term epidemiologic studies of vaping, but from everything we know, 
about the chemistry, about what's in the vape, we're pretty sure that the benefits are going to be lifelong and long-term with respect to the risk of picking up a smoking-related disease. We know that from studies of Swedish snus and American smokeless tobacco products that contain lots of nicotine but no smoke. We know that's a benefit to people who switch. So we're here at the Global Forum on Nicotine, and of course this is its ninth year, I believe, or the ninth edition. So that's a, that's a lot of time spent on, on a conference and efforts focused around nicotine. Why such the effort around nicotine? Do people not understand nicotine and what it is? Well, before I get to that question, you know, nine years, especially for American audiences, that's 3.6 million dead smokers. That's why we're here, and that's occurring all over the world, and that's why we need a worldwide effort to move smokers that can't quit or won't quit to safer products. So what is it about this issue then that has so many people up in arms? It, it certainly appears the FDA doesn't share that view and WHO doesn't share that view. Well, and as you said about nicotine, that's one of the problems. The overwhelming uh, opinion by smokers and non-smokers, and including a lot of health professionals, is that nicotine is not only addictive, which it is, nicotine is the cause of many of the illnesses that smokers have high risks for. That is what's false. And that is what's frustrating that FDA, which is the regulator of nicotine and tobacco, hasn't tried to uh, correct that misinformation, especially with American smokers. So is nicotine safe? I think nicotine is about as safe as another widely consumed addictive drug called caffeine. It's available in coffee. There are lots of people addicted to it, but long-term consumption of caffeine results in virtually no serious health effects. That's what we know about nicotine. It's not the same drug. It doesn't affect the brain in the same way, but we think that the lack of serious health effects is almost equivalent to those of caffeine. And I've been saying this with no one pushing back since 1994. So if you're an adult of majority age and you're, you're not a smoker and you for some reason decided that you wanted to pick up a mild nicotine habit, is there anything wrong with that? I don't see any major problem with people who find benefit from using nicotine in a smoke-free distribution system. I don't see a major impact with that. Not with all the other health concerns that health professionals worry about with respect to our patients. You know, we hear all the time, and it's growing actually, uh, the voices on this, is that nicotine harms developing brains. Yes, we hear that. And my response has been that there's actually outside of some animal models 
where they overload developing mice with big doses of nicotine. Outside of that, there is virtually no human evidence that nicotine has affected brain development. And let me give you an example. We have 30 million adult smokers in the United States. We have somewhere about double that, 60, 70 million former smokers. It has never been shown anything clinically that those, that those current or former smokers are different in any way from their non-smoking, lifelong non-smoking counterparts. There's no evidence for it at all. So how can they say the nicotine's affected their brain development? We have lots of ways to scan brains now, but no one's ever demonstrated any defect. So how then can CDC, which does make this claim, and, it, and it's made by many government organizations that are involved in tobacco control, that nicotine harms developing brains. I mean, there's research I've just even seen recently in the last month coming out trying to establish some kind of cause and effect on this when common sense shows that it can't be the case. Well, I mentioned mouse models. There are also, uh, they also try to produce these effects in cells that are grown in laboratory conditions. And I can tell you, I've participated in some molecular biology research. You can take cells growing in a plate, you can torture them and make them do just about anything you want them to do. You can get anything, any impact you want. But when you do that in normal doses to the human, the, the entire human, you don't get those same cellular effects. And so I think all of that research is blown out of proportion for two reasons. Number one is to establish that nicotine is a demon drug. And number two, it's to get more and more funding. You have to make your research as relevant as you can so that you can get funded for the next grant and keep rolling in that, uh, in that funding stream. There's no credible evidence that nicotine causes cancer. Again, a lot of those studies are taking nicotine and isolating it in cells and trying to produce effects at the gene level or other effects that then they claim is, uh, is, is relevant to the cancer development in humans. Take Swedish men. They're probably the highest prevalence of smokeless tobacco use, what we call snooze, in the entire developed world. And they've been able to find virtually no impact on cancer incidence or cancer mortality uh, among those men who use snooze for a lifetime. So impacts in cells don't translate into impacts in humans, and that's what I believe we should be focused on. Let's take a moment to discuss this conference, GFN. Why is it important to have an event like this? Well, GFN is exciting because it's not just academics or professionals in tobacco control talking to each other. It's, it's a lot of folks interested in 
tobacco harm reduction or safer substitutes, but they come from all directions. There are professionals here, but there are also consumers. Consumers need to play a role. The, the usual statement, nothing, nothing for us or about us. us. Right. That's very important. And I'm always excited to appear and to, um, to discuss these issues with the consumers that are being affected. Because that's, again, how I was brought into the issue. I was dealing with the patients, but it's too late. These consumers are, have, have uh, used these products just in time. Now, you were recognized last night with uh, Dr. Mike Russell uh, Award for your work uh, in tobacco control. What did that mean to win that award? Well, it was overwhelming. I've spent 28 years in this field, and as I indicated earlier, I came into the field as a pathologist who had had experience with the, with the end results of a smoking career. In comparison to a lot, in, a lot of folks in tobacco control who are specialists with addiction medicine, psychiatry, psychology, public health, they have a different focus. That, and it, it's a great focus, but it, they haven't seen as much of the end results as I have. So I always considered myself a little bit separate and never part of the usual groups of folks who tried to, get, to um, promote tobacco harm reduction. But this award last night, based on the grandfather of this concept, the visionary who saw this years before anyone else. He's a visionary that when I first uh, published my first paper, and I was tobacco naive publishing this paper, I referenced in my articles because I knew who had the best research, and he did. And so I worshiped him like everybody else here did and to be to have an award with my name in any way in the same universe as Michael Russell's name is just unbelievable. One of the things the the attendees here at GFN are struggling with is how to figure out a way to somehow bridge the divide within public health on this issue. Is there a divide um, and what to do about it. There is a divide, but the divide is very still very lopsided. I mean, when I came into the field, I, I couldn't find uh, collaborators or others that had the same, the, the same interests in safer products. Now there is a small uh, contingent of folks in many countries who are definitely interested in helping smokers switch. Uh, that's why this event is so important because it brings together people who, and allows us to share ideas and, and uh, plot where to go next. But it's still a very lopsided. When you say public health, I, I would have to say that the dominant, uh, the dominant numbers in public health are still very much against this.
and that means all of the major medical societies, all in the U.S. and Canada, all of the major governmental agencies. Uh, it's still a very, very lopsided affair. I think one of the major goals in the United States and adopted, it seems, more and more in Canada is this idea of a tobacco-free society. And the way the government uh, funds that vision is it uses a fairly substantial budget at NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, to fund academic researchers throughout the country. And mainly their goal is to find bad effects of any form of tobacco use. And right now the emphasis is on e-cigarettes and vaping. Now that's being supplemented by a transfer of somewhere around two to three hundred million dollars in tobacco user fees from FDA over to NIH to feed that pipeline. Now when those researchers are funded for those effects, and it doesn't matter whether they had an original interest in tobacco or not, they take their uh, research program and they adapt it to the tobacco resources and they get grants. And then the, 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 the most prominent effect of those grants, the most prominent results are negatives against any tobacco use. And so that tends to, um, <clears throat> that tends to uh, promote more and more outrageous findings, number one, to reach the media, and number two, to reach your next grant. And those outrageous findings, even at times, border on the fraudulent. And that's an area that we've had some activity with. What do you mean fraudulent? Well, I mean false results. Uh, results that are simply not true. From government-funded research? Absolutely. And it's pervasive. And so if a, if a person like me at a university wants to get other colleagues to participate in tobacco harm reduction research project of some sort, um, other, other investigators, most of whom are NIH funded, never want to risk uh, alienating the funding agency, no matter what their research is, because they know what the NIH uh, intentions are for tobacco. So it's a big problem and it affects nearly all university research. So is that then an inherent bias? The government seeks to uh, pay for research that will support a preconceived position on this issue? I think largely that's the case. Government funding supports negatives for tobacco research and has never been interested in a balanced approach toward these harm reduction products. Let me give you an example. Uh, in 1994, I published my first uh, article uh, basically suggesting that smokeless tobacco was less dangerous, less hazardous than cigarettes and should be considered by smokers uh, uh, who are unable to quit. The National Cancer Institute, which is the largest of the NIH uh, agencies, 
uh, uh, communicated to my university that this idea was unethical, that no one should be talking about this, and they indicated that I was unethical to be on the faculty. They challenged my faculty position in my university and challenged the university uh, that this idea was not to be tolerated. And I don't think that mindset has changed in any way in the last 28 years. It drives everything at universities. And so it makes it very difficult for anybody who's, who is uh, balking at the main theme to, uh, to, to get anywhere. What is your advice, I think, for people attending this conference and those watching it online in terms of how to move forward to secure these kind of rights uh, for consumers to have access to these uh, tobacco harm reduction products. Well, one thing we have to be vigilant is when a study's published, don't just read the headline. Because the headline is generated by the researcher who's NIH funded, is transferred to the university, their media relations department always wants to get maximum exposure. And then the anti-tobacco crusaders always want to use that to drive down tobacco products. Don't pay attention to the headlines. The second thing that I'm trying to share with, uh, with uh, participants here is that we need some sort of post-publication review that's systematic. And I'm not just talking about reading the paper and trying to find minor issues. I'm talking about taking their data, the data they used, and conducting a new analysis that checks it. Because when we did that with several studies now, we've come up with major, major problems. And we've had published letters to editors at journals, and the journal editors are very reluctant to change their decisions based on a, 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 a challenge after publication. But we have a couple in, in the process right now. As you know, we took care of an especially egregious study claiming that vaping causes heart attacks, which was completely invalid, completely fraudulent, because those heart attacks had occurred 10 years before those participants picked up an e-cigarette. So that's the kind of review, that's the kind of work that has to be done to keep this anti-vaping crusade in check. Thank you, Brent and Brad, for an interesting discussion. That's all for today. Thanks for watching and see you next time for more tobacco harm reduction updates and Brent's forthcoming interview with Marwa Glover, who has worked on reducing smoking-related harm for over 25 years. Thank you and goodbye.